This is the Criterion Creeps Podcast. I'm Jared Duncan. RJ Maylog. And we're just two guys who have no other choice now but to creep our way through the Criterion Collection one spine number at a time in order of release. This week, we're starving orphans, beating prostitutes to death, and all in a fine coincidence, it turns out we are actually brothers. Uh, It is a serious case of the double dickens as we hit spines number 31 and 32 in the Criterion Collection. David Lean's adaptations of Charles Dickens' Great Expectations from 1946 and Oliver Twist from 1948. But first, RJ, sup? Not much, man. Yeah, I'm drying out. Yeah, I'm drying out since the New Year's. I did a I did a little bit of the boozing, as the kids call it. No kidding. <laughs> Some uh, yes. Well, what do you mean, no kidding? I've never alluded to the fact that I indulge in uh, a libation every now and then. This mm-hmm. is news, I think. Yeah. Um. Yeah, I did a little drinking, and now I'm trying to get my life back together. I guess things Good. happened. Things I'm proud of. Things I'm not proud of. Mm-hmm. I found out Arby's isn't open on New Year's Day, so that's kind of blows. That's unfortunate. (laughs) Because apparently they're a a premium fast food restaurant. They don't have to stay open for what I could only imagine is probably the busiest fast food day of the year. Uh, Yeah, probably the businesses that decided to be open on New Year's Day, they probably Mm -hmm. cleaned up. Yeah, exactly. So uh, that night at like 2 a.m., I got some BK because I had it my way. Uh, quality ingredients and then uh the next morning i wanted to get some curly fries i had a mad hankering for some curly fries but they weren't open so i had to indulge in other evils Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. none that should be named i guess in case they come after me but uh you know the one with the clown uh yes with ronald um rj do you recall sending me photos of yourself when you got home yeah okay yeah I do. Uh, I, I recall because I saw the pictures the next day. Yeah. I, I have, however, started receiving pictures from other people from the New Year's festivities. Yeah. And uh, they are premium. They are top quality. Mm-hmm. So I make good choices sometimes, Jerry. Yeah, sometimes. Sometimes. Yeah. I, I, well, I remember sending them to you because I wanted to share with you my enjoyment of uh, the Burger King. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I got like, I got that photo at like two forty two a.m. Um, I was like probably asleep for like two hours by that point. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, it looks like you were having fun. Yeah, I was about uh, elbows deep in a poutine, no. which is uh, I mean, <laughs> what else can you, what else can you ask for in life, Jer? Um, anything but, I guess. Oh come on. Hmm. Well, anyway, well, um, when not getting drunk on New Year's, uh, what have you been able to creep on? the last few days there sir i did some creeping for you buddy thanks i did some real creeping uh i actually so to start things off my last film of the year i snuck in right on new year's eve Mm -hmm. early in the day Uh, i found out it was a the full-length movie was available on youtube so i checked it out and it was 1992's final judgment starring god's favorite child brad dearth yeah, you join a exclusive club of people who've watched this movie on Letterboxd. Uh, apparently, there is only three people who have seen this movie, yep. which is uh, maybe three too many. Mm-hmm. Um, no, it's it was okay. So let me lay it down for you, baby. Yeah. Brad Dourif plays a badass priest. You uh, The movie opens up, and he stumbles upon some bad hombres, and uh, they try to mug him, but he says, that ain't down today, baby. It's like the the Lord wills it, and he steals the guy's knife, and then he says, "You you bring a weapon, you best use it, pal." And the guy's like, "We won't get you later, man." And it's like, "Whoa!" You so it it lets you know right away that this guy means business. 
right? Because he's a priest, but he can fight. Yeah. So then Brad Dourif goes to a stripper's house, and uh, you find out that he's friends with the mom of this stripper, and he's like, hey, your mom doesn't want you to be a stripper no more. And she's like, whatever, man. And then he leaves, and then a, a different bad ombre comes in and uh, kills the girl, and then Brad Dourif... Uh, comes back in because he's only like a block away he hears the screams he comes back in and then he makes the uh the smart decision to take the murder weapon and throw it out the window because i guess he was mad at it or something and then uh isaac hayes comes as the lead detective and uh it's like hey brad duraf you're the uh the only suspect in this murder case so uh mm-hmm. what you what unfolds is uh, a series of you see the guy who is a so-called artist the murderer and what he does is he goes and murders strippers and hookers so uh to uh inspire his art and his art is like he's the kind of guy like it's fucking amazing he in this scene to show that he's an artist right after he kills that girl he goes to a blank canvas completely naked and just starts like spe- like uh like whipping his paintbrush at the canvas like so it just splatters in there and stuff like that and he's just like uh, oh uh, like making grunts and stuff yeah so that's that's art for yeah, you yeah so um so what you find the movie is like film craft that, even film craft exactly so uh that guy is killing people where brad duraf is trying to uh find him because little do you know the girl that was actually killed was actually his daughter spoilers <gasps> so he's personally invested in this that's very dickensian and, yeah it was um and then uh, isaac hayes is probably the worst actor i've ever seen uh He's in he's in this as a detective and he's just super bad. Uh, is, is, I don't know. Does he just play himself essentially, like the the Isaac Hayes character? Pretty much, but like he they don't really give him a whole lot. His like all his dialogue mm. is stuff like "Just so you know, you're my suspect, baby," and it's like, oh, okay. Uh, <laughs> so he he doesn't have a whole lot going for him in this one. Okay, but uh, um, so this movie was bad. <laughs> but uh, I, I enjoyed watching it nonetheless because Brad Dourif was uh, the center of attention for like an entire 88 minutes or however long this movie was. How long was this movie? Longer than it needed to be. It's oh. not even on Letterboxd. Nobody's even updated it for the length. So Aww. that shows you the uh, the importance of this bad boy. Yeah. But uh, yeah, no, it was okay. It uh, boosted up my numbers for uh, my Brad Dourif watches this year. Mm-hmm. Which, uh, if anyone wants to see my stats, my 2016 stats are official. My most watched actor this year. It's a two-way tie. Can you guess? Mm, Mel Gibson, Brad Dourif? That, it would be the case. Mel Gibson is one below Brad Dourif. But uh, last year, I, uh, I went through the whole Harry Potter franchise. Oh. And that's... So uh, my actual... Can you hear that? Uh, not, not for a second there. <laughs> yeah, I think I cut out. But anyways, so Brad Dourif is tied for number one with Rupert Grint, everybody's favorite actor, Ron Weasley. <laughs> but if you take out all the Harry Potter actors, it's Brad Dourif and then uh, Mel Gibson and then Gary Oldman. So okay. I think I did for myself. Um, anyways, what was I talking about? Movies? Movies. Oh, yes. So then I watched some jungle movies. I watched Jumanji. That got put on Netflix on New Year's Day. So that was my first movie this year. Yeah. Can I tell you something? It holds up. It's good. <laughs> I like it. I know you probably hate it, but whatever. Uh, uh, well, I saw it in theater many moons ago. Um, I, I generally am not a big fan of that uh, 
that Robin Williams fella. Oh, sh- come on. What are you, fucking heartless? What? Because he's dead? He's special now? No. No, he was not because he's dead. It's like he's such a kind soul. You don't smile when you see him? Uh, I don't know. He's in so much bad stuff that it's hard to look past that at times. Were you thinking about Father's Day with the Billy Crystal? Uh, no. There's like things like Flubber, like that, like kid stuff. Oh, yeah. He's like kids era of movie making, just horrendous. Disney um, dumped a truck of money on his lawn. What do you What do you expect? <laughs> have I ever shared you the with the? Uh, I can't remember if I talked about the Robin Williams story on this on this podcast with. <laughs> Not on the podcast. Okay, so uh, many years ago, uh, Robin Williams filmed a film a movie. Yeah. A movie, even called yes. RV, uh, in our mm-hmm. uh, na- in our uh, backyard, uh, mm-hmm. and apparently he's like quite a like or was a uh, big comics fan, a a nerd at heart, and I guess mm-hmm. he uh, he needed some comic books, so he like early one morning while he was filming his film, uh, he stopped in at our local comic book shop and he bought some trade paperbacks and he used the toilet. So mm-hmm. um, we've since moved one stall over from that original location, but there is a toilet in right next door to us that Robin Williams shit in. <laughs> nice. Yeah. Nice. So um, I mean, star-crossed right there. Wasn't it all? Uh, yeah. Yeah. No, that's nice. Mm-hmm. I think he was like, um, he's a big Zelda guy or something, so he's really into like figurines. Maybe that's why he was there. Uh, well, he's in the comics. He bought some, like I think, like Transmetropolitan, and uh, I know he's really into Warhammer. Cool. I has he's like a, a bunch who had again a bunch of uh, Warhammer uh, armies mm-hmm. uh, for people who know what the fuck that is. And right. yeah, yeah, and I think he got he named his daughter Zelda. So yep. there's pretty that. Neat. Yeah, yep. pretty nifty. So, pretty neat. I like Robin Williams. I always have. So Jumanji. Yeah, Jumanji. I thought it was really good still, man. I probably haven't seen it in like 10 years, but uh, there, there's limited CGI. It's basically for the monkeys and the stampede. Um, mm-hmm. It doesn't look horrible. Like, it's fine. It, I thought it was going to look worse going in, to be honest. And then there's a lot of like, actually, like, I have to commend them. They did a lot of practical effects, like like uh, a lot of the animals and like the vines and shit like that. A lot of that stuff was like just things that they made like you can tell they're not real but i prefer that over the cgi they still look pretty good yeah um yeah no i like jumanji man i think it's a fun movie as everyone says it's dark too the kid gets sucked in that board game and you're just like oh shit and his dad hates him and you're like oh shit it's good stuff i like it i actually had a jumanji board game i'm not sure it did did you get sucked into the game no it's kind of sucked in that regard Oh. But it was oh. a. I remember being like a nicely, nice looking package at the time. Just a basic right. board game. I think you're a nice looking package. Thank you. Yeah. No. Yeah. The board game looks super cool. And uh, did you know that they made a sequel to this now with starring The Rock and Jack Black? Isn't that a remake? Uh, they call claim it's a sequel. Oh. Uh, they say they are not remaking it. And like all the pictures I've seen are like jungle pictures. So my theory, I don't know if this is out there, but maybe it's the people who made the board game and they're in the jungle for real. What? I don't know. I don't think they've said anything about it. It's just The Rock, like, tweets out or, like, Instagrams out a lot of pictures of him and Jack Black in the jungle. So oh. that's my that's my hot theory. I don't know. Yeah. Maybe it's already oh. all been... And then, yeah, like, did you, have you ever seen the spiritual sequel, Zathura? Zathura? Uh, Netflix, um, Netflix uh, tried to get us to watch it afterwards. Whoa. 
Um, yeah, that's a that's a John Favreau number. It looks like as well. Ah, which is coincidental because <laughs> my next movie was a John Fav- Favreau. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, I've never seen Zathura, but uh, I heard it was okay. Um, anyways, so the next movie I watched was another jungle movie. It was last year's The Jungle Book. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, uh. Um, I'm not going to talk about this one too much. It was fine. Uh, I like The Jungle Book story a lot, so I think um, that was one of the reasons that I liked it. It's not like great. I don't know. The CGI is fine, but it, at the end of the day, it's just some kid in a big green room running around with CGI monsters. Um, I don't know. I'd, I'd rather just watch the 40s cartoon again. I think that thing's like mint. Uh, well, it's not that old. For uh, It's like 67, but I'm gonna I, watch I, get the, your, I get your cartoon. point. Yeah. I'd rather watch that classic animated film than this one. And it's like, it's not that it's bad or anything. Like it's... I. I can see why it made all the money in the world. Like if I was a little kid, I would eat this shit up. Mm-hmm. But uh, the only, uh, my only gripe, I guess, is there's not enough music in it, Aww. which I like quite a bit. They, they, they kind of half shoehorned in Bare Necessities and uh, King Louie's song, which by the way, I don't know if you knew this, but King Louie was played by Christopher Walken. And he, he very briefly sings the, uh, I want to be like you. So that was, that's worth the price of admission. Hmm. Yeah, it's, actually, I was going to say, like, if you're thinking of uh, Jungle Book 40 stuff, uh, in the Eclipse collection of Criterions, they actually have, like, it's a Sabu collection. So Sabu is just, like, a uh, actor, and he, he was yep. a bunch of different stuff, but he was a Mowgli in a 1942 mm-hmm. version of it that I haven't seen myself, but I think it's actually just on YouTube now that I'm looking at it, because it's in yep. the public domain, I guess. But I think that's supposed to look really kind of cool, giant snakes put in there, and mm-hmm. so I'd be curious to see that probably, again, more so than the John Favreau movie. Sorry, yeah. John. John. Oh, uh, well, whatever. He's just locked in now. All he's going to do is these D- Disney remakes. But uh, um, one thing I was going to ask you, because I feel like you would know this, is King Louie in this movie was fucking huge, like as big as a house. Okay. Like five times the size of Baloo easily. Is that like Possible? what the book is? Is like because orangutans are big, but they're not as big as bears. Um. Well, there's like the one orangutan that's in uh, the – Planet of the Apes new movies. He's sizable, but yeah, I don't know okay. if I... So maybe the size of a bear, but not like 10 mm-hmm. times the size. Like he's literally as big as your house. Huh. That's pretty large. Yeah, I don't... So I don't, I don't know if it was like their flourish that they wanted to put in there or if that's like more accurate to what it normally... Or like oh, what man. the book was. Yeah, I'm looking I'm looking at a, a still Bills. here of King Louis and he's, uh, he's immense. He's got to be... He's like two stories tall. <laughs> Yeah, like seriously, like I think he could basically pick up Baloo in his hand. Like that's how big he is. Huh. And yeah, Baloo's yeah, not Baloo, little. Yeah, Baloo's big, but yeah, he's no yeah. – yeah, I don't know. I don't know the science. I'm not into the animal sciences. Uh, I know orangutans a lot, Jer, because that is my favorite animal, and they can get pretty big, but not as big as a house. Mm, so yeah. anyways, point is uh, this movie is fine. Um, if you like Jungle Book – I'd say to watch it, but uh, you probably already have. You do, <laughs> you, yeah. You probably already have. You do. So uh, I, I'm really one thing I really want to rewatch is you remember that Jungle Book movie they made with Liu Kang from the Mortal yep. Kombat movie? Yeah. I really want to watch that because doesn't it? But I don't because I'm pretty sure it's all like real animals, right? Yes. So I have a feeling I, it would make me really sad. Um. Yeah. It's. Been, I haven't seen that movie since I was like in. I don't know. I was 12 years old, probably. Yeah. Um, I have no, I, that's the movie that comes to mind actually when you were talking. I'm like, oh, yeah, there's that thing. I think that, yeah. Yeah. 
because it's neat because it's all real animals but then now that i'm an adult it's like oh it's all real animals yeah. i just remember there was like an anaconda or something and it really scared me so that's neat yeah yeah and then i got two more i'll just burn through real quick for you jerry okay uh i followed that up with tra- the newest trailer park boys movies don't legalize it are you a fan of trailer park boys yeah um i was there was like uh like i love the tv show um, mm-hmm. It was one of those shows I kind of, I don't know, I kind of wrote it off initially. It's like, oh, it's some shitty Canadian comedy show that is not going to be mm-hmm. any good. And then like, um, it was like Richard Metzger who like, did the website Dangerous Minds in the day. He like just heaped so much praise on Trailer Park Boys and how great it mm-hmm. was. And I was like, hmm, I could buy that for like $10 at the local shop. So I did. And it was like totally blown away by how funny it was. Uh, yeah. So I, yeah, I'm a big fan of the television show. Um, I haven't really gone out of my way to watch the new revamp stuff because usually that right. stuff always goes horribly wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's like in the movies, I think I watched the first two or three. Yeah. yeah, Two or, yeah. So I I think this is like the third official movie because they have lots, but a lot of them are like specials. Right. So I don't know like how they fall into the timeline. Like some of them are like standalone where things will happen in that movie, but it's not really like canon. It doesn't follow into the TV show. Mm -hmm. Um, so I think this is like the maybe like the third actual movie that's kind of canon yeah um but uh so uh, i'll just talk about the series in general really quick the show is awesome as you said um the new netflix series they're pretty good they're not as good as it was but uh, it's it's still pretty funny and it's still a lot better than a lot of the other stuff out there and uh so this movie i thought is the best one that they've made so far okay. so i i really liked it um, it's it's close to what the show was basically like when it, in its original run that's kind of like how it plays out um, you get some good stuff uh, you, everything's there that you want and it was kind of bittersweet because uh, I had not watched this when it came out and then I had watched the new episodes in which uh, Ray, Ricky's dad like in real life died and then my mm. favorite character Philadelphia Collins he died too in yeah. real life because he, cause he was like so obese but uh they both popped up in this and i was like oh my god phil collins so it uh it made me really happy but also sad because i was like i guess that's it that's the last anyone will see of mustard tiger mustard tiger phil collins so anyways if uh if you like this show at all uh this don't legalize it it's a good it's a good one okay yeah maybe i'll end it there i've been talking for a while okay um, well, I'll mention a few, uh, movies I watched, um, for the end of the year, I guess I squeezed in a movie that's on, I think it was like the TIFF's 100 essential films list that uh, something like I just hadn't seen before. And I've always seen touted as like a great film and it's cinema mm-hmm. paradiso from 1988. Mm-hmm. It's Italian movie. Um, and I didn't like this movie at all. <laughs> oh it, no. So it's the story behind it is that it's it was originally like released as like a three hour long movie uh it felt at the festival it was at whatever one it was mm-hmm. the the Weinsteins showed up and they they grabbed it snatched it up for distribution but then I guess mm-hmm. like I think it was Bob Weinstein he decided this movie needs to be an hour shorter so he edited out like this th- this three hour long movie down to two hours now this just yeah. sounds horrifying because I think just like a week ago we were talking about uh, studios showing up and like re-editing movies and it's never a good thing 
Um, but mm-hmm. so this movie, though, like in its two-hour form, went on to be like a huge hit. Uh, it did really well. It re- did really good business considering it's like you know foreign subtitled movies. It actually made yeah. money in America. People loved it. Um, and then like I guess like in two th- in the early two thousands, it got re-released, like restored with that like fifty minutes of stuff that was cut out, put back in. And like Roger Ebert, like I think it, when the movie first came out in its two-hour version, gave it like three and a half stars and when it came out in his three hour version he gave it a four star review but then he said that like he thinks the two hour version is like a way better movie <laughs> and mm-hmm. it's, like, it's like one of those one of those odd cases where the studio interference was actually a good thing um mm. but i just i didn't like this movie at all i think it's shit um but it's very much in line with like kind of like the weinstein's like types of movies they like which are crowd pleasers um and like it's like to me all that like sentimental shit just rings true like to me is like false sentimental like it seems really unearned the story is about uh it's a young kid in a like italian village um who helps the local church where they uh run um movies out of they they're Mm -hmm. all being edited by like the local uh whatever priest man uh, whatever Priest he is, man. I'm not sure what he, what he is that exactly a, superhero? A, a padre. I don't know what it is. Yeah. Uh, he's like editing these movies, so he, like the actual projectionist, he has to cut out these scenes that involve kissing in them. And so, these, like, there's like this uh. ongoing gag that whenever these people are watching the movies, all the like sexiness has been removed, and so people always, oh, oh they can't believe all of it's been removed. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it is it's like you're watching a bunch of people watching movies for hours, and it's supposed to be like about the love of cinema. So if you like movies, you've got to love this movie. Too. Um, a like a fire happens in the church, and the projectionist is there, and he he goes blind. So the kid has to wind up being the projectionist in the town, and schmaltz and unearned sentimentality happens, and we're supposed to give a shit. I don't. Um, and then he the, nice. the, the the kid grows up to be a director. And he becomes his own, Aww. like uh, yeah. And then, uh, then the projectionist dies. He, not before uh, this kid, of course, this kid now a man who's learned all these lessons from him about life. And uh, the, <laughs> so the movie ends with him going back to the town, mm-hmm. and like he's like, "Oh, you were left something, son." And they, here's like a, here's the film reel. And what it is is it's a collection of all the kissing footage and all like the stuff that was cut out. And it's been assembled <sighs> into one final film. And so you just get to see this like these the the director watching it and he's like keeps like he's like reacting like yes oh my god this is so wonderful and he's like i don't know if he's teary-eyed but and it's just like it seems like totally ruined because they keep cutting back to the director's face like as mm-hmm. how proud he is at this like great moment that he's made about this expression of love and i was just like i, I couldn't i didn't give a fuck about this movie at all as it went on um I could totally see why it's a crowd pleaser, but it's just like all the Weinstein movies that they like do this to like life is beautiful, Shakespeare and love. There's mm-hmm. all always hollow to me. Um, they just don't, I don't know. I don't get anything out of it. So thumbs right. down cinema paradiso and that TIFF 100 mm-hmm. essential films list with its bullshit slumdog millionaire on it, but without oh. a, and not a single Coen brothers film, not a single Werner Herzog film on that list, but, we got, a- but, uh, <laughs> Was the Dark Knight on that list? Oh no, of course not. Then that's a bullshit list. Well, because Slumdog was on there, brother. Fucking Slumdog! I've always hated that movie because of that shit. And yeah, Slumdog's sort of like another one of those movies. It's like uh, people like it. It's a crowd pleaser, but yes. But I, I like. I'd watch Slumdog before I'd watch this movie again. Well, Facts. yeah, okay. Danny Danny yeah. Boyle's a far more interesting director. Um, 
to look at. Yeah, this yeah. movie, forget yeah, about yeah. it. Anyway, I managed to squeeze in before the end of the year, Trading Places from 1983, uh, an R.J. Pick. Uh, this is a movie I'd, Pick. Yeah, I'd never seen this before. Um, it yeah. was meant to. It's always like highly regarded for the year I was born as a, a movie to see. So mm-hmm. I decided, damn it, it's a New Year's Christmas, Christmas, Christmasy kind of movie. So I watched mm-hmm. it, and I was really impressed with this. I liked it a lot. Uh, it was actually funny, which is uh, amazing to actually watch a comedy from the 80s that's actually funny still. Mm. Um, nice. Yeah. So Dan Aykroyd, he's, uh, I don't know if you talked about this too much with the plot, but I, I did briefly. Yeah. So like, I think it's basically rich people are awful, which is always yep. like a great thing for a movie to have. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, like, uh, Eddie Murphy, he's, uh, kind of on that cusp of like kind of shitty Eddie Murphy humor, but also still like edgy and yep. good Eddie Murphy eighties stuff. Yep. Um, because I always find him, like, really, I don't know, I've never gotten him either, because I'm a grump and I hate fun. Um, yes. But it, there's times, like, he makes me, like, definitely laugh, and then there's other times where it's like, oh, it's like Robin Williams. I just don't, yeah. <gasps> they're, they're in the same camp for me. It's like the, the humor is kind of hit and miss. Yeah. But, well, I, yeah. And Eddie Murphy also had the same trajectory as Robin Williams, where they started doing these, like, 90s family comedies. Yeah. You well, know. that's where the money is, man. It Why is, work hard yeah. when you can work smart? that's uh, very well put um well i'm glad you liked it because yeah. uh, i wasn't sure if you would or not but uh, yeah I, as a I treasured uh, <laughs> christmas movie for myself uh i'm glad that uh it has been mm-hmm. well received by everyone yeah. jamie lee curtis definitely does have a fine pair of tits um, yeah she shows them all the time in that movie yeah she's popping them out uh what else yeah. is in this thing to bring up uh yeah the the two brothers Randolph and Mortimer were uh, mm-hmm. really excellent I loved delightful the, 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 they uh really nailed their performance as well um mm-hmm. and I loved the kind of the absurd uh train heist sequence just involving oh, yeah. uh, Eddie Murphy playing sort of like the stereotypical African student with his ha 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 laugh and then yeah, you have awesome. uh the butler showing up as the drunk Irish priest and then you have Jamie Lee Curtis playing like a Swiss German exchange student with breasts. Mm-hmm. And then Dan Aykroyd shows up as a uh, Rastafarian man in blackface. Um, yes. What makes it all work for me is uh, because, like, the guy they're trying to hoodwink, he's, like, onto them, like, immediately. Mm-hmm. And just his reaction to, the, like, how stupid this all was is just, like, perfectly pl- uh, played as well. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And then you get some gorilla rape sex jokes. Oh, I knew you'd like that. Those, those land. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, it's a good time. Uh, I still don't understand the stock exchange at all. Nobody it, does, man. Uh, it's it's somehow gettable. Some like somehow these guys get into it and they follow it and it makes sense. Um, it's still nonsense and it's terrifying that our entire world is run this way. But mm-hmm. uh, here you go. Yeah, I don't. I've never understood that part. Um, it just makes me not want to do that stuff. Yeah, I'm really not sure, like exactly how Eddie Murphy and Dan Aykroyd wind up rich. I pork or frozen concentrated orange juice, man. Like, That's all you need to know. They they, they bought. I, I don't understand. It. I, they bought it high and then they sold it off before it got too low, and then they made a bunch of money, right? I I don't know, man. I think that's. Something- I, I I honestly have no idea what it actually works out. Like, because yeah. they talk about highs and lows, but then you see what happens, and you're like, wait a second, what happened? Yeah. So it always confused me that part. Yeah, and it still t- confuses me. Uh, so then I watched a a film noir, RJ. 
Ooh, dang. Um, called The Prowler from 1951. Uh, this is from the director of the M remake I was talking about last Ooh. week, uh, same year. And this movie mm-hmm. has a misleading name because the Prowler doesn't really ever play a part in the movie too much. So the movie starts off with a woman at home doing the dishes, and she looks out her window and she sees someone. And she mm-hmm. just, and all the, the, the opening shot is just like her reacting basically to this, and then she calls the police. The rest of the movie kind of introduces this police officer who shows up uh, with his partner to investigate this Prowler uh, report. And he's just kind of a creepy dude. He's like, kind of like, oh, this woman's alone. Oh, I'm, I'm alone. I'll just hang out with her, even though she's married and she's putting out all these signs that she doesn't really want uh, my attention. But he just doesn't give, doesn't take a hint. And I'm like, oh, so it's the cop, the Prowler? And I was like, really, like the first 20 minutes of this movie, I was like, yes, this movie's excellent. Like, uh, she's playing it really well. Um, it's like going to be a seedy movie about repressed sexuality but then she just kind of winds up falling in with him and like she starts having an affair on her husband with this guy and i was like oh i I thought this movie was going Mm -hmm. in a totally different direction uh but no it kind of goes down the noir path um and so he sets up a situation where he can kill the husband and make it look clean Mm -hmm. as a police officer due to a mistaken identity of who the prowler was even though there was no prowler and then uh, they st- they wind up starting a life together, but she's pregnant in a time frame that doesn't really make sense with their story. So they have to like go off to like the desert while she has this baby. Um, it's okay. It's got a really good vibe. Mm-hmm. Well shot, decent characters, but it's definitely not like a highlight of like stuff that I've since watched but i'll talk about that more next week i've decided january is going to be january Ooh, nice pun man yeah so stick it noir vember oh yeah why don't we make our own rules that's right Janu- january um i got nothing else <laughs> yeah that's about it so far but well, i like the sentiment yeah so that's uh yeah i just realized i'd really been neglecting my noir bones uh i haven't like checked out anything for a really long time mm-hmm. uh and since like i've been keeping track on letterbox i've only seen like about like i don't know six or seven new movies and i've seen like all the old classic stuff back uh in the day in my early film nerd days but and mm-hmm. i should rewatch a lot of that stuff because it's been a really long time since i've seen like the maltese falcon and whatnot so and whatnot. that's what i'm going to do this month um, and then, uh, one number I'll leave off with is a little film called Blood Moon from 1997. Uh, this, this falls into the Shittima, uh, realm because it's a film that answers the question, Hey, you know, that movie Manhunter you all love. Well, what if Manhunter had some mixed martial arts and some martial arts exchanges in them? Hmm. Sounds good. What if what if uh, one of the instead of just having Will Graham all boring by himself, you also mm-hmm. introduced a like fifth rate Eddie Murphy guy who's also a wannabe magician. So he's a detective, a homicide detective who also likes to do magic tricks, accentuated with sound effects. Um, mm. And so you get it, so you get that movie. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, so it's a movie about a uh, jaded martial artist. Uh, who's come back to kill people who won in a tournament that he was in years ago since, cause he's like apparently lost some fingers and now he's got like digital cyborg hands and he just shows up and challenges people wearing like a metal mask and a cape and he beats them up and uh, he's killing them. So he's this MMA serial killer in New York and uh, Eddie Murphy guy. He's, he's 
uh, needs help, so they bring in a, a mind hunter, RJ. Was it Christian Slater? No. Um, it's kind of like, I guess you'd call him a second-rate uh, Jean-Claude Van Damme, maybe third-rate Jean-Claude Van Damme. Damme. Christian Slater? Uh, Gary Daniels. Gary uh, Daniels. Gary what Daniels. A boring name. Yeah. He's, yeah, so... Um, what can, what can be said about Gary Daniels? Yeah, I'm not sure what I think he's Australian. He's he's some or English. He's English, I think. So you know, right. he's just a guy, but he's a mind hunter. He's like a Will Graham like character who's like he he got in too deep tracking down these serial killers, and mm-hmm. uh, now and he's also into MMA, fittingly enough. And so yeah, lots of excuses. Uh former WWE superstar Rob Van Dam shows up uh, randomly playing a pinball machine, trying to have sex with his girlfriend. He gets killed. Um, Wait, he plays a pinball machine? Like, no, he, he, his character is the pinball he, machine? He shows up playing a pinball machine. Okay. Yeah. All right. I gotcha. Yeah. It would have been more interesting the way I put it. Uh, it would be. Um, yeah, I don't know. This movie is, like, fine for a junky piece of crap. Uh, mm-hmm. It's on YouTube, folks, I think, so you can check that out. I think the, like, really bad, like, artifacting and poor digital quality adds to the vibe of this t- sort of movie. Um, so, yeah, mm-hmm. if, if you're into, like, if you're always wondering, hey, Red Dragon, it needs more MMA, Blood Moon's the answer to your prayers. Well, uh, I'm sure someone likes it. Mm-hmm. All right. Well... Well, I'm not gonna watch it. I know you don't like action movies at all. You don't. I like I like man action. But this is man action, RJ. How many abs are there? Lots. It's a movie mm. about mixed martial artists all battling all the time. Yeah, but is it good though, or is it? I only like the good man movies. Uh, well, it's subjective. Like Commando. RJ, cinema is subjective. Not to me. <laughs> all right. Well, whatever. 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 So, RJ, what news do you yes. bring, sir? Oh, I got some news for you, pal. Sure. It's not, um, it's not uh, movie news, but as I found, or people know by now, sometimes we cover creep news. So I got some creep news for you, Jer. Mm-hmm. I'm going to start with uh, the opening paragraph of this article because I think it sets a nice mood. Uh, there's something undeniably creepy about big, expansive libraries, the hushed whispers, the almost artificial quiet, and the smell of dusty tomes combined to create a surreal experience. But when it comes to creepy libraries, Harvard University might take the cake. You see, at least two of its books are bound in human skin. And the article title is, Harvard discovers a few of its library books are bound in human flesh. Uh, So apparently they found some of these books a couple years ago, and uh, they sent them away to get tested. Uh, And this was a very popular thing in the 17th century. It's called... Anthropoderm- anthropodermic bibliopagy. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, what else do they say here? Uh, these creepy books deal with Roman poetry, French philosophy, and a treatise on medieval Spanish law. Uh, and here is a quote in one of the books. Uh, the book's uh, final pages include an inscription in purple. The binding of this book is all that remains of my dear friend Jonas Wright, who was flayed alive by the Wavuma on the fourth day of August, 1632. King Mabessa did give me the book, it being one of poor Jonas's chief possessions, together with ample skin to bind it. R.I.P. Uh, so that book actually turned out to be not human, but two of the books <laughs> did turn out to be made out of human flesh. 
so um, they kind of talk about how, uh, you know, that used to be a thing, and that's it. So I thought that was creepy. <laughs> and uh, also, it's the new year, and there's no news for movies, so that's all I got for you. Oh. What do you, what do you think about human flesh books? Are you pro or or non-pro? Um, well, if you don't have, I don't know, if you want to make it extra special, um, it's not that far off from, like, when they took, like, Mark Grunewald's ashes and put him into, like, the printing of that Squadron Supreme trade paperback way back when, or when, like, Kiss allegedly put, like, yep. dro- blood drops into that Kiss comic. It's just, uh, it's a, it's it's a, gim- it's, it's a gimmick. It's not, mm-hmm. it's not gross or anything. It's just what it is. Um, it doesn't phase me. <laughs> doesn't phase you at all? No. All right, well. It's fine. I, I know what I'm getting you next Christmas. Oh, the, that would be thoughtful. Yeah. For well, it will be because it'll be my own skin. That's fine. But not st- stuff that I peeled off. I just collect the like the skin that flakes off, the dry stuff. Mm-hmm. So you got to re-oil it and you got to put it in like one of those uh, rehumidifiers or whatever those things are, you know. Okay. Do you remember those? Anyways, com- do you remember those commercials for pet eggs? Pet eggs. Pet eggs. P e d. Pet eggs. Yeah, it's like are the those thing the that things you, can you rub your heel. Your, yeah, you can yeah. rub your calcy heel with it. Um, I oh, remember okay. there used to be this really uh, awful commercial involving this woman using it on her heel and then like her, her emptying her skin flakes into the garbage. Yeah, I remember. Yeah, that, that is was, pretty that, gross. That, that's now that's gross. <laughs> yeah, that is gross. So don't well, send me that book. Well, okay. Well, I, I just thought it was relevant because people who are Dickens fans uh, undoubtedly uh, read in tomes of human mm-hmm. flesh. Uh, well, I just randomly came across a story uh, on my newswire here from like 20 hours ago that Michael <gasps> Keaton passed on Batman Forever because the script, quote unquote, sucked. Yeah, what else is new? <laughs> <laughs> yep. There you go. There you have it. Yeah. Um, Can I tell you something, though? Yeah. I actually like Batman Forever. Really? I'd watch that movie. Yeah, but I was also like nine when that came out. So mm-hmm. uh, I was the right. Um, Batman and Robin, uh, I can still watch. I don't think it's like, I'm not one of those guys who like threatens to kill Joel Schumacher, but uh, mm-hmm. Batman Forever's fine. I like Jim Carrey. Yeah, Jim Carrey, he had a, a heyday. And that was like mm-hmm. kind of during his peak, that uh, like mid 90s when he could do no wrong, even when he was doing crap movies. Um, that is correct. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, Batman. I, I remember watching Batman and Robin like on TV like a while ago, and it's, it's like a terrible movie, but it's like enjoyably bad. So, yeah, exactly. I don't know. I don't get where people yeah. uh, get off claiming it's like one of the worst movies ever made. Uh, it's like an extravaganza in badness, but it's like yeah. I think it's like it's still pretty entertaining in how bad it is. So yeah, exactly. I, that's that's good. Um, mm-hmm. It's better than being boring. Wow, I'm just looking, yeah. I'm just looking at Jim Carrey's filmography here. Yeah, we had uh, Ace Ventura, Pet Detective, and The Mask, and Dumb and Dumber all came out in 1994. Those are all five-star movies, though. <laughs> That's a hell well, of a... Well, The Mask is maybe four stars. A hell of a year. Hell of a year. Yeah. But yeah, Batman Forever, Ace Ventura, When Nature Calls, that was his 95. Yeah. And then he had the, ca- the the Cable Guy, 96, which I think was a bit of a mm-hmm. stumbling block for him. Um, and then Liar Liar, the following year. I remember that was all the talk in junior high. Yeah. Oh, and then The Truman Show in 98. Which is like, yeah, really good. And then Man those on are the, all good movies. And Man on the Moon is really yeah. good. I don't know about Liar Liar because that. How does it compare to Yes Man from two thousand eight, which is That's like fine. it's the same movie. Yeah. Um. 
Oh yeah, you're, yeah, you're right. You're that. But I oh like yeah, them. you're that piece of shit that rated How the Grinch Stole Christmas three stars. I forgot hey, about that. Hey, come on, all right. You want to know about How the Grinch Stole Christmas, baby? You know I don't want to know why I like that movie. When that so movie ugly. came out, <laughs> so ugly. When that movie came out, I was 11 years old in elementary school, and I was in the school play How the Grinch Stole Christmas, and I was the Grinch. Mm-hmm. Thank you very much. And uh, I was a uh, slightly overweight little kid who liked to make jokes and do voices. So uh, the Jim Carrey's and the Mike Myers were my absolute heroes. So yeah, I did write that movie three stars and you know what? I'll stand by it. So, so fuck you. (laughs) Cinema is subjective is also an acceptable answer. (laughs) No, I want, I want to get it out there. I like those guys. Okay. Yeah. And I like, yeah. And I I enjoyed blood moon. (laughs) So who am yeah, I? Who exactly. am I? It's as good as the Grinch Stole Christmas, probably. 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 Anyways, so, folks, mm-hmm. we've got some movies to get to. Yes, we do. So after the break, we're going to be talking about David Lean's 1946 movie, Great Expectations. Come on. Get ready to lower your expectations. <gasps> Uh-oh. Uh-oh. Controversy. self-imprisonment. Estella, you must leave this house. It's a dead house. Nothing can live here. What was the brooding secret of a young man's childhood? The brilliant team of film craftsmen that brought this happy breed, blithe spirit and brief encounter to the screen have gone to Charles Dickens for their latest story. Not because he is a classic writer, but because he is the greatest storyteller of all time because no one can portray more faithfully than Dickens the hopes and doubts that dwell in the heart of a boy or hold you poised so perilously between a smile and a lump in the throat. 
I wish I could kiss you goodbye. Who could paint more vigorously than Dickens in the broad colors of melodrama? John Mills is the boy grown up with great expectations. Lovely Valerie Hobson is Estella, grown up from the spoilt little girl who allowed Pip to kiss her. Introducing Anthony Wager, chosen from many hundreds of boys to play Pip when young. Gene Simmons already started on the road to stardom. And the 101 odd characters that come to life beneath the sure hand of the master. The fools and the criminals, the weak and the strong, the vain, the meek, the modest, the brazen, the gay, the sorrowful, the desperate, and the pompous. Francis L. Sullivan is Jaggers, the lawyer. What do you suppose you are living at the rate of? The rate of, Mr. Jaggers? The rate of. Nursing a broken heart in a morass of self-pity, the mad Miss Havisham, played by Martita Hunt. Bernard Miles as Joe Gargery, Pip's humble, faithful friend. And hunted alike by the law and the lawbreakers, Finlay Curry as Magwitch. Oh, Lord, be merciful to him. The sinner. I have come back, Miss Havisham. I have come back to let in the sunlight. And we're back. And we're talking about Charles Dickens and David Lean. So, uh, a little context first. Um, so, British films during the war years and after were characterized largely by escapist type of movies. So, highly romantic historical pictures uh, were kind of the rule of the day. So much that I guess some um, exhibitors of these movies would complain. It's like, hey, can we get some movies that don't involve, like, pens that are feathers? <laughs> um, just like, because that's what people wanted. They wanted nice movies after being bombed the shit out of and, like, having, like, dead bodies being shipped back from uh, Europe to uh, mm-hmm. to you. So people wanted nice stuff. So I guess to change things up, uh, I guess, arguably, uh, David Lean's subject matter after making movies like Brief Encounter, which were nice kind of contemporary movies, uh, was to make a period piece that people wanted to see, but something a bit darker, like, like a drawing from that Charles Dickens period, which are movies that are kind of like were social critiques. Um, mm-hmm. Movies in depicting poverty and crime and squalor um just definitely a different period of time from kind of that post-war where like the class system had kind of started to change around a bit in england even though it's still kind of there where you had like real divides between the poor and the middle class work worker class and then the your aristocracy and lords and whatnot Mm -hmm. the things that we usually associate with uh victorian times um, so I was looking it up. Uh, I think one of the earliest Charles Dickens films uh, ever made based on his work was a D.W. Griffith uh, f- adaptation of Cricket on the Hearth from 1909. Um, that sounds so interesting. <laughs> it's, it, that is like so English. <laughs> mm-hmm. 
Film critic David Shipman wrote of these two films. Of the other Dickens Shipman. films, Shipman, only David George Shipman. <laughs> only George Cooker's David Copperfield <laughs> approaches the excellence of this pair, partly because his casting too is near perfect. These two films were the first directed by David Lean to star Alec Guinness, whom Lean considered his good luck charm. Um, mm. I looked up Gail Merrill del Toro when asked by Criterion to do one of those top 10 films from the Criterion collection lists. Uh, he mm-hmm. has both these films on there saying most people remember David Lean for his big scale epics like Dr. Zhivago, Lawrence of Arabia, or Bridge on the River Kwai. But here he is at his most precise mm-hmm. and poetic. Both movies are epics of the spirit and both are played by grand, utterly magical moments and settings. Whether showing Oliver's mother straining and in pain by intercutting with a flexing branch of thorns or by lovingly lingering on Mish Havisham's decaying splendor, Deline understands the need for hyperbole in order to manage the larger-than-life Dickensian archetypes. Some of the passages in both films skate the fine line between poetry and horror. Hmm. With that all being said, let's start off with Great Expectations from 1946. Uh, A bit of a rundown of the story, uh, in case you're not familiar with Great Expectations. Pip, a poor orphan who lives with his horrible older sister and her husband, Joe, the blacksmith, one day goes out to visit his mother's grave and is accosted by an escaped convict, uh, convict, who he helps helps out of fear for his life. Uh, Despite his efforts to help the con on the run, the convict is sent up the river by the proper authorities. We get a time jump to Pip now being brought to this creepy old house where one Miss Havisham lives, uh, and she has a penchant for mind games, using her ward Estella to fuck with boys. Miss Havisham is a hollowed-out bitter soul who was abandoned on her wedding day and has been caught in this wheel of perpetual bitterness ever since, uh, using proxies like Estella, wearing her wedding dress every day in her home where rotting wedding cake and cobwebs reside. Havisham, yeah. Havisham is having her ward Estella basically be beautiful and treat old Pip poorly, as this is the key to any young man's heart, and it apparently works. Um, we get another time jump now to Pip as a younger or older younger man, ready now More to become man. yes, become a blacksmith's apprentice with Joe, and forever be relegated to his working class status. Or is he? Well, Pip lands himself a mysterious benefactor who couldn't possibly be uh, uh, anyone but this random escaped convict guy from earlier who wants to bring old Pip to be a proper gentleman with great expectations. So he gets Mm. brought to the big city where he's going to be shown the arts of the gentleman by one Herbert Pocket, played here by Alec Guinness, all while keeping obviously not escaped convict guy named Magwitch just outside of the picture because he's in England illegally and became rich in some offhanded sort of land deal overseas. And then, yeah, we find out Magwitch, the convict, is the mysterious benefactor. And this all has to be kept quiet uh, because Magwitch isn't supposed to be there. Um, Magwitch is really keen on old Pip uh, since he was a good kid back in the day when he needed him. Um, mm-hmm. Havisham was pretending that she was the benefactor, leading him on to make Pip believe that that was the case. But she's still bitter and horrible, wants to destroy people's lives. Estella is back, looking hot, but uh, she's got no heart. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's set to marry this turd Bentley Drummle. Oh, hey, uh, turns out Estella's actually the daughter of old Magwitch. What a coincidence. <laughs> Now yeah. old Drummle wants nothing to do with her because she's the daughter of a dirty old ex-con. Uh, as for that scheming Havisham, don't worry, she literally burns alive. Uh, oh, yeah. Oh. And it turns out that the other escaped convict guy from the beginning of the movie is also Mish Havisham's old fiance, and he wants to kill that Magwitch guy. And that winds up happening, but not before he learns that his daughter is alive and well, so he can die happy. 
Uh, mm-hmm. Hey, everything basically works out here in the end because that's uh, that's the nice thing to do. Mm-hmm. RJ, mm-hmm. what did you think of Great Expectations? You want to hear? You want to hear what I thought of these expectations and whether or not they were great? That's why we're here. That's why we're here. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna start off with a little bit here. I had never seen any adaptation of this at all. Me neither. So th- I was going in completely fresh. Me too. And can I can I tell you something, Jer? I yeah. might surprise you. Yeah. I thought this movie was really good. Okay. I actually really liked it. Uh, mm. I don't know why. I thought it was super interesting. Uh, not interesting. Engaging. Uh, number one, it looks great. Uh, that intro with like the marsh and the black and white and like fog black and white fog i think is like my favorite shit ever where you got like marshes and posts and uh crosses and stuff like that and you got all that fog that's the best that shit is the best uh so i thought this whole movie looked really good i thought the story was pretty interesting um despite your uh i think sarcasm in uh your synopsis i actually didn't think that the escape convict was the benefactor until he showed up and i was genuinely surprised i was like oh shit because i thought it was miss havisham but what a fool i was like all the other audience members in 1942 who i'm sure were maybe also fooled maybe not well (laughs) For that book that was like a hundred years old at that point. <laughs> uh-huh. uh-huh. Uh huh. So <laughs> I thought that was pretty cool. Um, I don't know. There was a lot of stuff I liked. I liked the uh, the dark gothic um, like feel of Miss Havisham's mansion, where it's oh, yeah. just like dank ass spider webs everywhere, and the uh, just the fact that she's got that cake just rotting forever, mm-hmm. uh, and she's just the oldest lady alive. I thought that was all really neat. I liked that shit. Uh, there's also other creepy stuff, uh, like those creepy ass face casts, uh, which I also thought was really funny when, uh, the kid goes to the lawyer's office when he first gets brought into the high life and he looks up and he sees like a mask and he's like, whose likeness is that? Whose likeness is that? How is that even a way anyone talks? Insane. But anyways, I thought that was creepy that uh, this guy gets like face molds of people that die for Mm. some reason. That's pretty neat. Um, what else do I want to talk about? Um, I have like individual things that I like, but, uh, one, uh, I can get to that later unless you want me to just blow through it. Uh, whatever. Go for it. All right. Uh, at the start, uh, that lady's got some sick pouring skills. She pours tea from about six feet up, which I think is crazy. Uh, I wrote down a quote that was called sick fancies, which, uh, when Miss Havisham brings in little boys to play in front of her, I thought sick fancies was a term that we could describe your interests a lot. Um, what else? His fancy clothes are really funny because he just looks like a pilgrim with a really big tie. Uh, I thought, uh, Alec, or not Alec Guinness, but when his dad comes and he's like fumbling with his hat, that's the most out of control hat I've ever seen. I don't really know why it's like that. Um, this movie got really dark when that lady burned alive. Uh, also, was no one going to question him for that shit? Like she, she burns alive and then he just leaves and everything's like fine. Nobody's like, hey man, did you burn that old woman? I thought that was pretty weird. Um, and then I'm just going to finish on one note, which is, Partially this, partially the next movie, partially other movies we've watched already. Yeah. And how often did people buy orphans? Like, is this a thing that happened all the time? Like, Citizen Kane, he gets bought. Oliver Twist, he basically gets 
like you see other kids kind of getting bought or like farmed out and in this one it's like you have a benefactor it's like did no one question that it's like someone wants to like give you lots of money it's like oh cool like well because like in, in citizen kane he's not even an orphan he just gets outright basically bought traded up yeah. to a to a richer man <laughs> so like how often did that shit happen that this is like I don't know. Right. Uh, I, I don't know. It's a, It seems like it's more of a uh, narrative trope than it is, uh, I don't know, based in reality. Like real I, mean, I don't know. I have no idea. Okay. I'm, I'm not an orphan. All right. Well, anyways, I actually like this movie, uh, and I was surprised by it. So uh, let's let's hear your take, I guess. But... Eh. Eh. <laughs> yeah. Do you think it blew? Uh, I thought it was pretty uninteresting. Um, right. I, I think the movie, I, I think it comes down to like, I don't really like the story that much. Um, everything, okay. everything is like, it's kind of like the worst of like Charles Dickens stuff in terms of like, everyone's related to somebody and everything's a coincidence. Mm-hmm. Um, the mannered costume drama stuff comes through too much. And there's like way too many scenes of characters. Like this is like a complaint that people would have against like Citizen Kane where it's like, it's just people talking in rooms, which is sure. bullshit because that movie is like amazingly shot and like super exciting like every scene is just super exciting this Mm -hmm. i felt like wasn't that like excitingly shot and seemed like it was a lot of the time was just like cameras watching characters in rooms over and over again like when i kind of skimmed through this again uh this morning like just like on my laptop Mm -hmm. and i was like oh my god is this the same scene like it's literally like back to one guy sitting behind the table again like there's like no movement there's like no changing things up it seems like they're moving kind of just through spaces um Mm -hmm. And I don't know, like it's, it's very well shot. I mean, like outside of like the Miss Havisham's, like her, like the set decoration in that and like everything like that stuff's awesome. Like that, that I was actually mm-hmm. really aware of like uh Gilmero del Toro in those scenes. Cause I was like, this reminds me of like Crimson Peak and like kind of yeah. like Mario Bava stuff. Um, but again, those are all things that uh, if people, astute listeners will recall, I don't really care for Mario Bava that much. And I didn't, yeah. and I don't like Crimson Peak at all. Um, and it's sort of like in the same thing for me, like where I'm just kind of like not that excited by the, mm-hmm. p- the period, um, I guess, at least as it's depicted here in Great Expectations. Um, I guess someday I could try watching one of the BBC miniseries adaptations of this that are like more like episodic and like they're, I don't the know. sexy ones? No, I don't think they're sexy ever. Um, they're just longer, I guess. But like, maybe they, they let the story breathe more. I don't know. Mm-hmm. There's just something I couldn't really put my finger on. But I just like was totally sure. not engaged by this movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was kind of like, man, what is up with these like David Lean movies? This like summertime, great expectations. I'm just like, just something, yeah. just something off about them for me. Um, like and like obviously like also like the Miss Havisham thing. Like I was thinking like well, this like this seems to work fairly well, but something seems mm-hmm. off. But I was like realizing that one of the things I really liked about this is like oh yeah, it's basically Sunset Boulevard, um, which came out oh like, yeah kind of like, like five years later. It's like the same thing. Uh, yeah, like a crazy old woman like all wearing mm-hmm. wearing her old clothes, living this old husk of a life, um, in her mansion. Same kind of beat. And I think I'm, I'm sure Billy Wilder uh, probably drew on that like. Like they, maybe not from this movie per se, but definitely from the the book that again again has had been out for like a hundred years by the time this came out. Sure. Um, but yeah, like yeah, basically like, for the scenes that really jumped out at me, it, it seemed like stuff was just happening for long stretches, and then uh, then she starts on fire, and I was like, mm-hmm. what? And then like the scene of him like having to pull the um, the tablecloth off and just destroying the yeah. long table. That's really good, and like trying to put her out, and she's like, well, I guess she's dead. 
Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and then he just leaves. And then he just walks. Yeah, he just drops the mic, I guess, and that's, yeah. that's that. Um, but yeah, I mean, like, I've just been on this sort of like a Charles Dickens kick the last week or so, watching all those Christmas right. Carol adaptations. So I'm definitely, like, was in the mindset of, like, going into this being like, yeah, I'm really excited. But mm-hmm. I don't know. Great Expectations just didn't do it for me. Um I don't know. I can't put my finger on what that was, but I just found I was really indifferent. And I think it's, it comes right down to the story. I just don't mm-hmm. like it that much. No heart Duncan, huh? No. Can't, no heart he Duncan. He can't have a happy ending. Mm-hmm. No, no, that's fine. Like, that's what I was saying to um, before I watched both of these. I was like, I was fully expecting me to just be like, Bleh. Like whatever, just mm-hmm. boring old ass shit. But uh, I I did like this one. So okay, yeah. Um, yep. it, I liked it, it. The two things you mentioned too is like the cinematography and the production yep. design. Uh, but yep. it won uh, Academy Awards for both. Uh, awesome. for uh, the work of Guy Green, the cinematographer, and uh, mm-hmm. John Bryan, who's the production designer, who would yep. uh, carry over to Oliver Twist. Hmm. I do. Believe. I think this this one's the better looking movie. Really. Oh, I do. Wow, that's crazy to me. Um, yeah, so in 1999, uh, it came fifth in a BFI poll of the top 100 British films, while uh, in 2004, Total Film made it the 14th greatest British film of all time. Damn, um, those are that's pretty high rankings, mm-hmm. man. Uh, in 1948, when it played in Canada, it was the most popular movie at the box office. Holy cow. Wow. How about what a world that? we live How in. How about that? It's probably because of all those handsome people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? I guess. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, all right. All right, cool. Well, uh, that's great expectations, folks. Uh, after this break, we're going to be back with David Lean's All of a Twist from 1948. Come on, baby. Let's do it. who kept a series of fine films with the memorable Great Expectations, now recreate Charles Dickens' best-loved work, Oliver Twist. No other story so full of drama has such humanity. Nowhere else can you find characters who make you feel so deeply emotions you want to hide. Robert Newton is Bill Sykes. Get up. Alec Guinness, whose brilliant characterization as Mr. Pocket was outstanding in Great Expectations, unbelievably transformed, is Fagin. Why are you awake? Speak up, boy, quick. Kay Walsh is Nancy. You've got the boy, what more do you want? Let be! Francis L. Sullivan and Mary Claire are Mr. and Mrs. Bumble. Henry Stevenson, Mr. Brownlow. 
Kathleen Harrison, Mrs. Sarberry, Anthony Newley, the Artful Dodger, Diana Dawes, Charlotte, and introducing John Howard Davis. My name's Oliver. Oliver Twist. Do you know what this is? Yes, sir. Well, if you speak a word when we're outside, you'll get a bullet through your head without warning. What's become of the boy? And we're back, talking Oliver Twist, directed by David Lean from 1948. So, Oliver Twist is about Oliver Twist, professional mm-hmm. orphan. Uh, we see in the beginning his delivery into this world, his mother seemingly escaping uh, from the world that has turned against her in a very stormy, dramatic fashion, uh, delivering uh, her to a parish workhouse. Like all great fiction, we get rid of old mom by having her die in childbirth. Uh, where he is raised by the faceless, uncaring state. We mm-hmm. get probably one of the most famous beats in English literature, the, please, sir, I want some more. Uh, the state does not care for this kind of upstarting, so he is sold to a local coffin and furniture maker to be a helper. Uh, but that winds up falling through as his dead mom gets shit-talked and Twist ain't having any of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, before he can get sent back to the workhouse, Twist runs away to London and he falls into a bad crowd, uh, into a thieves' guild run by a fellow named Fagin, played by Alec Guinness. Uh, at first, things seem pretty cool. All bit of fun, getting treated with some respect, with a roof over your head, actual food, camaraderie. But there's this lingering sense of real danger here. Um, we get introduced to an angry brute of a man named Bill Sykes and his main squeeze, a local prostitute and barmaid, Nancy. Uh, it is all kind of a great old surrogate family, really 21st century. But Oliver gets pinched for a failed pickpocket gambit on a random old man, and the true colors of his surrogate family come to light. Uh, mm-hmm. Before we get to that, though, it turns out that that random old man isn't terribly random because this is Dickens, baby. And the old man has some strange, unknown reason to really care for this poor lad. So he takes him to uptown where he's going to be well fed and put into a real, actual caring family. Of course, one thing uh, Mr. Bur- Brownlow, that's his name, uh, doesn't think is a problem is sending a nine year old boy to go return some books to the bookstore that's located in Rape Town. And Oliver Twist is quickly back in the hands of Bill and Fagin, who are uh, mm-hmm. afraid this kid might have given up, uh, not from any evidence that this has happened, but from paranoia and their own lack of character. Uh, so they want him firmly in their control because Fagin is also being paid off to kind of keep this boy away uh, from Brownlow. Um, Nancy, though, feels this is all kind of bullshit and wants to see Oliver return to the now concerned Mr. Brownlow, who has put up ads paying a sum for Twist's safe return. Of course, Fagin and Bill can't have that. Uh, Fagin, picking up on Nancy's betrayal, has uh, her followed by one of his boys. And sure enough, Fancy is scheming to have Oliver return to Brownlow. Fagin uses this information to fire up the dangerous Bill Sykes, and he definitely delivers, and he beats Nancy to death. Uh, from there, the plot just goes on and a manhunt is underway everything converges dickens style and things work out for the best as long as you are not a woman 
Mm-hmm. Um, well, I will lay out that I had never seen this movie. I had never read Oliver Twist before. Um, like I said, like honestly, I think really the only Dickens I know is probably Christmas Carol pretty thoroughly. And everything else I kind of just know from broad strokes and pop culture references and stuff mm-hmm. like that. So I was going into this completely blank. And I think this movie is absolutely amazing. I like absolutely loved it. Um, I think it looks amazing. Um, the story's great. It's got like, I mean, it's got some of like the best of David Lean's work that I've seen, uh, probably like, it seems like his like Mm -hmm. filmmaking skills had just gone up so much, um, in this movie from like a lot of the stuff that I've seen. I mean, like I include like, I saw his previous movie to Great Expectations, uh, Brief Encounter, I'd seen that, I've seen that like about five, several years ago and I was kind of not really mm-hmm. impressed with that movie either and that's a movie that like people really regard highly as like one of his best movies. But I don't know, this movie feels like a real turning point for me with his stuff that kind of like gets him toward like that like great filmmaker David Lean status. Um, sure. So yeah, I don't know if it was like, because I watched Great Expectations the one day and I went and watched Oliver Twist the next day and I don't know if it was Lord Expectations but like this movie I thought was just like absolutely phenomenal um Mm -hmm. the doom and gloom atmosphere that gets this thing started it's just like an expressionistic like film um like it's like it's kind of like that opening scene in Great Expectations but like done better for me like it's just like Mm -hmm. it's just uh far more interesting it's more extended um and then like once you get to that workhouse it is just like uh, awful like it's just like really mm-hmm. dire and it's like holy crap did they like build this like it's just an cr- incredible set design um like you really get the sense that this is like a horrible place and then you get these like longing shots of these like poor starving children and this is like a movie that's only like a few years removed from like uh like the end of world war ii and the holocaust and there's like these images mm-hmm. of these children just ashen faced and starving uh they're being fed like just like fluid like just like not food it's just water mm-hmm. it's hot water um and yeah the movie just kind of wowed me rj it wowed me it wowed you yeah um mm-hmm. i mean like all the tropes of dickens are here there's like withered old people uh everyone's like like there's like the needlessly cruel people <laughs> like they're mm-hmm. just like they're everything's ramped up but it's like um i think for me like all the weird coincidences that kind of happened in oliver twist they don't bother mm-hmm. me like they did in great expectations where i didn't care at all this like i was like totally into it um even though like i don't know if like oliver twist is actually that much of a great character um mm-hmm. like he's just sort of like a kid he's a really nice swell kid um and who wouldn't like beat the shit out of a guy who's shit talking your dead mom mm-hmm. i don't know um it was nice to see francis Sullivan back uh fat as ever uh, as, oh, the, yeah. as, the, as the beetle, the beetle. yeah mm-hmm. yeah uh, francis alvin uh we didn't talk about him too too much uh, in great expectations but he was a highlight for me probably just because I, I was i'm a big fan of uh big large men uh slurthering yep. around he looks the part um mm-hmm. yeah all the characters in this i think are pretty great um but yeah i i can say more but rj i'm curious uh what did you think of oliver twist well jer this week we have a rare treat. Whoa! You and me are in direct opposition of each other. What? Because I would rate this movie meh, liver twist. Whoa! Uh, so I think I felt for this movie what you felt for Great Expectations. Hmm. Um, I liked it, but uh, I thought so. I watched 
this immediately after Great Expectations. Mm-hmm. And I thought that it started to pile up for me. I thought the Dicky. Dickensian uh, coincidences were too much in this one compared to the last one. Hmm. Maybe it was because I had just watched it. Uh, that could be the thing. But um, I was watching this and uh, I didn't really take too much away from it, to be hmm. honest. Like, I didn't write almost any notes. Uh, and I think actually this might be a trend for me because I usually watch when we have double headers, I usually watch them in a row. Mm-hmm. And then I, I find I get burnt out on writing notes by by the time the second one comes so maybe i should switch my tactic here uh, but uh no i don't know um there are th- things i liked uh, as you talked about ex- uh expression expressionism expressionistic yeah like yeah. uh some of the landscape stuff it, it seemed all very like german architecture type things like oh yeah like uh, you know it, how it is like there's a couple scenes where the kids are running like on uh rooftops or whatever and you see the cities and all the buildings look very nice um, uh, again, I thought it looked good, but I think good expectations looked better. Uh, there was one scene in a rainy alleyway, which I thought was ace. I thought that was like the best part of the movie. The lady's like running down an alley and it's like raining. I thought that was super cool. Um, but I don't know. I think the problem with this one for me, like I like the story, but it's like we were saying the coincidences and I, I thought there was like, things I didn't quite understand. And I don't know if it's like, I'm sure it's just when you get a translation to a movie, but there were things like, so the lady character, when she sees Oliver twist in like rape town or wherever that is. And, uh, she, she like, she's the one who like recognizes him and is like, Oh, uh, my brother, come on, we need you come back. And like, so that they can like grab him again. And then they go back to the house. And then like, as soon as, they get there then she completely changes her mind she like tries to help him escape it's like it's like did you just like change your mind all of a sudden or is there more to this that just isn't shown i was very confused by it i thought there was a her change of heart was not uh uh not very well explained i didn't get it um other things uh there's a guy who just after the murder just walks around shouting murder brutal murder brutal murder and i want that guy's job that sounds really <laughs> cool um there's uh when the wanted signs go up for the two men uh they have the sil- or silks guy or whatever his name is sax and underneath it says dog and i was like wait a minute are they considering the dog as an accomplice to this uh murder because that's really fucked up but then uh the dog is a hero and i think this movie should not be called oliver twist should be called hero dog bullseye uh bullseye the hero dog um i did like uh, a lot of the ending uh we get a nice lynch mob which is really good and uh then the hanging was pretty cool i thought that was neat um fagin is awesome old alec that's alec guinness right yeah yeah i thought he was really good um i don't know like i liked it but i i like the uh coming in hot off of great expectations i was just Mm. like meh yeah, yeah, see, Great Expectations, I think, is, like, actually kind of bad. Like, I just, yeah. I think it's, like, it's, like, not good at all. And, like, Oliver Twist, for me, was just, like, man, like, what a great movie. Um, but it seems like you're more in line with, like, a lot of people who seem to think that Great Expectations is better. But I'm, like, I don't, right. I don't, I don't see it at all. I don't know. It's weird. Because um, you're not popular. I guess not. Um, yeah, no, yeah. I just, like, I found that, like, the, I. it's also, like, it's a much darker movie. Um, and mm-hmm. it seems like it's far more, uh, a bit more stylized, too. Yeah. Uh, and like I don't know I, I found that the story is just like 
Uh, yeah, I don't know. It's like it wallows in the filth more. Uh, and like it's yes. sort of like it depicts, yeah, where it's great expectations. It's just like, no, it's a bunch of bunch of rich people are going to get richer. And I don't know, it didn't mm-hmm. seem particularly concerned about the class aspect or like changing society. It's whereas right. like Oliver Twist obviously is a bit more active depicting like how horrible, um, mm-hmm. the, the, workhouse situation is which is again like something in christmas carol as well where there's like the comment about uh like well wasn't there workhouses can't the poor people get jobs that way why, why do i have to give them money mm-hmm. so it's obviously something that charles dickens was uh aware of and wanted to bring right. attention to um the one thing that i guess uh would be mm, something worth talking about would be the depiction of Fagin by Alec Guinness uh, with his makeup uh, which yeah which like I think that's like the only thing I've ever heard about Oliver Twist was like the both the character Fagin because uh there's this Will Eisner graphic novel that he did like several years ago called uh Fagin the Jew and like yeah. I'd always like heard of like there's always been like calls of like anti-semitism with that character at least particularly I think in this version and it definitely yeah. would be this version because it's like when Alec Guinness appears and he has this like his gigantic hook nose on his face that's just like so immense it's like holy crap um it's comically big well yeah it's like, like it's it's accentuated so yeah uh mm-hmm. that that definitely has brought that movie attention uh over the years which right. uh, I was reading a little bit about. Um, let's see here. The act, oh, this is, I think, a mix of like uh, one of the David Lean book I got from the library and Wikipedia. Um, the mm-hmm. actress portrayal of Fagin was controversial at the time. The first screening in Berlin during February 1949 offended the surviving Jewish community and led to a riot. It mm-hmm. caused problems too in New York and after private screenings was condemned by the Anti-Defamation League and the American Board of Rabbis. To our surprise, it was accused of being anti-Semitic, Lean wrote. We made Fagin in an outsized and we hoped an amusing Jewish villain. Uh, the terms of the production code meant that the film's release in the United States was delayed until July 1951 after cuts amounting to eight minutes. Hmm. Um, yeah, Alec Guinness's portrayal of Fagin and his makeup was considered anti-Semitic by some as it was felt to perpetuate Jewish racial stereotypes. Uh, Guinness wore heavy makeup, including a large prosthetic nose, to make him look like the character as he appeared in George Crosshank's illustrations in the first edition of the novel, um, which is true. He does look a lot like that. Um, at the start of the production, the production code administration had advised David Lane to bear in mind the advisability of omitting from the portrayal of Fagin any elements or inference that would be so offensive to any specific racial group or religion. Uh, Lane commissioned the makeup artist Stuart Freeborn to create Fagin's features. Freeborn, himself part Jewish, had suggested to David Lane that Fagin's exaggerated profile should be toned down for fear of causing offense, but Lane rejected this idea. In a screen test featuring Guinness in toned-down makeup, Fagin was said to resemble Jesus Christ. On this basis, Lean decided to continue filming with a faithful reproduction of Crosshank's Fagin, pointing out that Fagin was not explicitly identified as Jewish in the screenplay. Uh, mm. The March 1949 release of the film in Germany was met with protests outside the Kerbal Cinema by Jewish objectors. The mayor of Berlin, Ernst Reuter, was a signatory to their petition, which called for the withdrawal of the film. The depiction of Fagin was considered especially problematic in the recent aftermath of the Holocaust. As a result uh, of especially. objections by the Anti-Defamation League uh, and the New York Board of Rabbis, the film was not released in the United States until 1951, with seven minutes of profile shots in other parts of the Guinness performance cut. It received great acclaim from critics, but unlike Lean's Great Expectations, another Dickens adaptation, no Oscar nominations. The film was banned in Israel for anti-Semitism, and ironically, it was banned in Egypt for portraying Fagin too sympathetically. Ah, Uh, what a twist. Mm Mm-hmm. 
Uh, yeah, and uh, beginning in the 1970s, the full-length version of Lean's film began to be shown in the United States. It is that version which is now available on DVD. In 1999, the British Film Institute placed it at 46th in its list of the top 100 British films, which I say is bullshit. Hmm. I'd like to see what the other films are before I can cast judgment. Well, I, but, I'm just responding more to uh, Great Expectations being fifth. Well, that's, I was going to say, too, I think that's pretty high. Like, I don't know how how many British movies I've seen, but I think I could name at least 10 before great expectations. Mm, but you're not so, British. Are you, your opinion doesn't uh, matter. RJ. Yeah, I guess. Yeah. Damn well, right. Well, well, nah. all right. Well, that's, that's weird. Yeah. I didn't know. About, like, I know like you, it's impossible not to notice. I don't know. I was like, Oh, he's got a huge nose. That's funny. And then, <laughs> uh, but then he, like, I think he actually does a pretty good job. In the role, his voice is nice. I like his the way he talks. Yeah, yeah. No, he's like. I mean, he's a really great villain. Because I mean, uh, so I watched also the the musical Oliver from 1968, uh, which won Best mm-hmm. Picture. Uh, mm-hmm. it's, and it's a musical adaptation, um, and it stars a far too handsome Oliver Reed as the Bill Sykes character. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, it's got this awesome rendition of uh, like it's like when the kids are coming in to get their gruel. It's them singing about food, glorious food. Ooh, fantastic! Uh, good. It's not bad. Uh, it, it I I just find that like it misses a lot of the nuance that the David Lean version has. Um, yeah, there's actually one little thing I was reading about. Like I think David Lean was saying that like I think like he he laid out uh, making Oliver Twist as like faithfully adapted from the uh, book as possible, and it would be mm-hmm. like a ten hour long movie to do it that way. So right. um, I guess like what he would do with like both like great, great expectations and Oliver Twist was like, they would like lay out each of like the major stories and then they would come up with like bridging segments um, and great right. expectations. It comes through the, um, uh, the voiceover narration of mm-hmm. uh, Pips where it kind of like, it's like, this is how I got to be here now, that sort of thing, which is good, smart right. filmmaking. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's funny. Like, do you know that bit in the movie where uh, it's like when Oliver Twist is like a infant is being delivered down into the workhouse? Um, right. And then like uh, you get the like Oliver Twist, uh, Oliver Twist cried lustily. If he had known that he was to grow up under the tender mercies of the beetle and the matron, he would have cried even louder. Um, that It's like weird because like I had just watched the movie and then I was like reading something about it and like something about like how, Oh, like that's not, that's not a narration. That's like just text mm-hmm. on the screen. But I'm like, Oh, right. That's, it wasn't read. But like when I was trying to think of what that line was, I kept thinking it was narrated and it's like, what a weird memory slip <laughs> like yeah. for, for something like that. It's like, I just watched it. And I, I totally forgot about that. But it's like, cause yeah, mm-hmm. there's no narration um, in Oliver twist. It, it shifts mm-hmm. completely to, which also might be why I like the movie a bit more. And also, um, the use of music in Oliver Twist, I find, is like a lot more diminished, I think, than in Great Expectations. I thought the opposite again. Hmm. I thought uh, the music in Oliver Twist was a lot more noticeable for me because it was more upbeat. It seems like because it was like lots of kids running around. And it was like doo doo boop ba doo ba da ba zibida ba ba boo. It wasn't that, but it was mm-hmm. it was upbeat. Yeah. So I noticed the music more in Oliver Twist, and I was like, huh, weird. Hmm. Yeah, I don't know. That's interesting that one movie works better for the other person. It's because notice, and you start noticing music or things you don't like as much. <laughs> yeah. So basically, this is the end of the show. Um, I guess so. That's it. That's it. What else is going to be said? Yep. Mm hmm. Yeah. 
Yeah. No, it's fine. You can have different opinions than me. I guess. I won't get mad about that. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm mad, but uh, yeah. I'll, you'll learn about that later. Yeah. Um, yeah. So anyway, who hates these films? <laughs> mm, interesting. Blue Void gives this Great Expectations film two and a half stars. It says, mm. I haven't read this classic book, and quite frankly, this didn't make me want to. It's an unfair judgment, I'm sure, but this movie bore me. There are spots of some really nice cinematography, but really the movie didn't go anywhere. I didn't expect it to from the beginning and didn't do anything to draw me into it. It felt like a book adaptation through and through. It felt like a stencil outline of a far more interesting story. It's competent and probably a fine companion piece to the book, but on its own, it wasn't anything exciting. There's pretty pretty mild hate, actually, uh, this week. Yeah. Uh, wolf- this guy's really against the books, man. Wol- yeah, so why is this like a book? Uh, <laughs> Wollstonecroft gave this two and a half stars. David Lean's adaptation of Charles Dickens' classic novel is a handsomely mounted piece of cinema that for some reason failed to grab me. I think my lack of engagement with the film is down to the casting of Pip. I just couldn't accept the nearly <laughs> 40-year-old John Mills as the young blacksmith's apprentice who becomes a gentleman thanks to a mystery benefactory. benefactor. Sure, as Pip gets older, Mills is more acceptable in the role, but by that point, the film has already lost its hold a shame as it starts so well although dickens plot contrivances do it no favors mm-hmm. um and as far as oliver twist uh aleph Nall says one star anti-semitism is the socialism of fools oh fuck that guy did it mm-hmm uh, and the gambler gave this two and a half stars, and he says such handsome storytelling up until the appearances of Fag and Nancy and Bill, all three adult leads traffic in broad labored strokes. Huh? <laughs> what? That's it. All right. Yeah. So one okay. thing I'll say is uh, I think uh, the actress playing Nancy, she she's mm-hmm. a little bit too attractive to, for for the role to be a bum. <laughs> to be like yeah, this like horrible like slag of a woman that lives in like complete destitution she's like yeah, she looks pretty good like she looks yeah, pretty, she's pretty clean it's like yeah she's very clean like like perfect complexion bright mm-hmm. eyes great smile it's like oh i'm sure there was like i don't know she looks a bit above uh the the pay grade that she was probably receiving there from bill and right. i will like i think like uh again just like thinking like yeah bill sykes i think he's a like, really great character um because he basically mm-hmm. it's like this weird thing because like in the the musical Oliver, there's like um, uh, it seems like it shifts the blame of Nancy being killed because in it in the David Lean version, it's like Fagin actually sends Dodger to follow yep. her, and it's like him like he knows what's going to happen. He wants to kill her, but he's mm-hmm. he's not going to do it himself. So he's he's like, well, Bill Sykes will do it, and he sets him up. He greases him up real nice, and he sends mm-hmm. him off on his way. But in the musical version, it's more like Bill Sykes kills her and. Um, Fagin's like, what? Why did you do that for? Why did you come back here uh, for that? Like, he seems like a lot more innocent, I guess, mm-hmm. in it, even though he's also like a heel. But uh, it's just like, it's interesting the draw of it. Cause like, and I keep getting drawn back to like that, the scene of like the morning after he's killed Nancy, of him like mm-hmm. just in that room with the dog and the dog wanting out of the room and the dog just completely disowning him. And like, mm-hmm. it, it knows like, I can't trust you anymore. And it's like this sort of, sort of a indictment of murder is like the greatest mm-hmm. offense you could possibly have in all of the world. Hero um, dog. Hero dog. Yep. Him mm-hmm. wanting desperately, and like the whole scene of him like beating her to death and the dog trying to escape from that room. It's just like, oh, yeah. it's like super unsettling. And there's like, yes. yeah, there's like no music. And then like the whole sequence after that, there's no music. And then just the slow reveal. And like that, basically from that point forward, the movie is just like one sustained like yep. like series of events. Like the, the people finding mm-hmm. the bodies, laying out, and like the crowd 
uh, surrounding the the body, and I don't know, good stuff mm-hmm. for me. But hey, that's Charles Dickens. I don't know if we ever see Charles Dickens again in our Criterion creep. But Are you do- sure? I th- I thought um, uh, Armageddon was a Charles Dickens story. Oh well, maybe you're right. Um, but we do see David Lean several times again. Oh, great. That's good for you, man. You love this guy. I like one of them. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So after the break, um, we're going to go buy some orphans and put them to work. so they're embroidered well enough i guess Ooh, Ooh yeah. yeah but what if it was like embroidered with your initials and it was like jf or no fun duncan and then someone else got it but their name their name was like yes fun plumpkin mm-hmm. well and then the initials are way off well there's like the whole thing in um uh christmas carol where like the one woman's like stolen a bunch of stuff from scrooge's place and she's selling it in the future and it's like oh i've got all this cloth and it's like those people don't care they just re they just repurpose it into their uh a, a, I don't know, bundles of clothes that they just wear because they're all ramshackled and hobos. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you just sew it into your, your dress made out of human skin. Yeah. Dickens yeah. style. Dickens. Yeah. Hey, you can email us at criterioncreeps at gmail.com. Uh, we've got a Facebook page. We're on Instagram. We're on Letterboxd. I'm Jared Duncan. He's Barnloaf. We're on SoundCloud, Stitcher, iTunes. Uh, follow, listen, subscribe, rate. That would be cool. Mm-hmm. Um... And hey, next week, it's a breather, I think, RJ. An American 1922 silent documentary film clocking in at a whopping 79 minutes. Oh, no. 79 minutes. <laughs> Spine number 33. Robert Flaherty's Nanook of the North. Uh, weather-wise, mm. it couldn't be more apropos. Yes, a breather and a good breather, perhaps, because we're going to need it in the coming weeks, RJ. Why? We got some beefy movies coming our way. Oh, okay. We got some beef. We got some. Beef. Du- we have beefy movies, and we've got double headers. Man, yeah. I quit. Well, it's all that meat, I guess. Ooh. Mm-hmm. Okay, I'm back. Perfect. Well, mm. goodbye, folks. Bye. So, you ready to talk about these movies, bro? Yeah, I'm ready, brah. All right, dicks out for Dickens. Woo! Whoa. <laughs>
<laughs> <laughs> Shit. Don't tell anyone I said that, okay? Uh, okay. 